out of my depth. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Humanist Agenda Podcast. This is episode 13, and we are talking about artificial intelligence today. My name is Kenny. My name is Sherry. My name is Selena. And I'm Will. Okay, so we had a lecture uh, this past week on artificial intelligence at the last HALA meeting, and uh, this talk was primarily talking about the concept of uh, super intelligent uh, artificial intelligence and some of the implications it has on the world potentially in the next, uh, I think there were some ranges between 50 and 125 years. Uh, so maybe we want to start some uh, basic terms that we might be using, some basic definitions. So I'll let Will give a little bit of an overview first. Yeah, so I know, I know the, uh, the lecturer gave his own definitions of intelligence and, uh, you know, and artificial. Uh, but just go a little, a little further into that, or more just to recap. So basically, there I'll leave his definition of intelligence um, to, to stand. But basically, there are different kinds of intelligence. So, for example, your calculator has a certain type of intelligence. Um, it's it's a it's I would call it a narrow super intelligence. So narrow in the sense that it's very specific, and it's not going to be intelligent at any other thing other than what it's specifically intelligent at. So it's only good at math and um, it's super intelligent at math because it is way better than any human um, could be at math. Yeah. So one example would be that a computer that could play uh, that, what's that, Go game? AlphaGo. Uh, AlphaGo, yeah. So well, I, I, well, that's actually, I, I wouldn't, I, I, so I guess, oh God, but we're already getting more complicated because, because I would argue that the com- the compute the two different types of computers that do go um, use two different methods of learning. Um, so at first they programmed um, all of the different all, all of the different moves that have ever been played in history, kind of thing, and just gave it like an encyclopedic knowledge of previous moves in, in AlphaGo, and then it used that in combination with a little bit of its own narrow intelligence to to play the game. But then there was another version of the other that was created afterward. This was explained in the lecture um, that didn't really start with any basic information. It just played the game. It was just given a win protocol and a lose protocol. And then it basically just, you know... It was given the set of rules. Yeah, it was given the rules and the win protocol and a lose protocol. And then it basically just played a version of itself and over iterative self-improvement became better and better and better, but without really having to have studied um, human moves in the first place. So I would argue that, that some of the process in the second one isn't really, I wouldn't really call it a narrow intelligence, although it's only good at Go, it kind of, it, it got there through a process of iteration that is, like, like, I can, like uh, it's, it's pretty limited in terms of what it can do, so I, I would view that as narrow intelligence, because if you're going to step up uh, to the next definition of general, mm-hmm. that's right. going to be more like a human being. But I mean, I, I wouldn't think of it as narrow in the same sense as a calculator is narrow, you know, because it, it's like... Oh, but, the, it, but the calculator is not learning. It still requires a human to provide the input for it to do the computation, whereas an artificial intelligence should be able to learn by itself. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying is, is that this AlphaGo did learn by itself. So, for example, the calculator isn't teaching itself to get better and better at math over time. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to equate what a calculator does with what AlphaGo does and just say, oh, they're both narrow, they're both the same. You know, I mean, I understand they are both narrow in terms of their ability to perform, you know, literature 
or write sonatas, you know, they can't do that. Neither of them can do that. But I wouldn't say that they're both the same in terms of their their complexity or, or sure. But I, I would, if, if you were to put it into buckets, I would still call it narrow. Well, well, because right? another thing about this is um is there there are AIs that are very similar to um to AlphaGo, but that can learn any game. So basically, the fact that like like any 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 if you give it any rule set and any win and loss protocol, it will be able to learn and get good at that. So in a sense, like that's kind of general. So that's like kind of like like it's like a general intelligence applied in a narrow way. Um, and and I, I'm not sure that the terminology I'm using is going to be generally accepted, uh, which is why uh, we were saying before the podcast started, I was a little iffy about about making any uh, concrete claims on, on this subject. But 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 yeah, the, the fact that, that it's just it spent a lot of time learning Go doesn't mean that you couldn't have used the same underlying system of intelligence to learn anything else with a similar structure, which which in my sense makes it less narrow than a calculator, right? Where a calculator is only ever going to perform the one function that you give it, where the way that AlphaGo works is it, it can learn to perform any function that fits within a narrow set of of parameters. So that's why it's narrow. Artificial intelligence. Sure. Where am I out of my depth? <laughs> yeah. Um, Selena and I are just like, yep, yeah, don't know. Well, like, I'm not saying it's a general intelligence. Like, I'm definitely no, not saying I, that. I, I would probably view general uh, artificial intelligence as exhibiting uh, human intelligence or being able to either match human and Human general intelligence, like uh, across to... a wide range of of correct uh, intelligent activities. Yeah, right. Because, because I mean, a calculator more than matches human intelligence in terms of math, right? But mm-hmm. but just because it, it's not, it's, it's the wide range which exactly. makes something general. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I guess back to just like, like to try and summarize that if we can, because there was a little area of disagreement I think there. But um, so you've got intelligence, which is the ability to perform tasks of an intellectual nature. Then you've got, and that's broken up into narrow and general intelligence. So narrow is focused on one task, like a calculator, where general is the ability to take that intelligence and apply it across multiple different um, areas of intellectual discourse, like language and math and extrapolation and learning and, and all those different areas, which lecture did a good job of, of digging into in the beginning of, the, of, their, of their lecture. Um, and then you've got super intelligence, which is basically... Just a level of, of, you know, of competence in an area of intelligence that vastly surpasses human level intelligence. So where humans would, by definition, have general intelligence, anything that is the ability that has the ability to generalize across multiple different intellectual discourses and be much better than the human would have super general intelligence or general super intelligence. Yep. That sounds about right. Okay. (laughs) So we'll start with that, that. That is the base definitions and go forward from there. Okay. So when is Skynet taking us over? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I think as I was listening to the lecture, the one thought that kept popping into my head was around whether the probability of this superintelligence would actually emerge. Right. Um, yeah. Primarily because I, I'm, I'm just speaking maybe from a very practical standpoint where a lot of things in the world is driven driven by economic factors. Mm-hmm. There's very little economic drive right now for this general intelligence. Like, you think? I think so. When you look across the industry, who 
where are corporations funneling their money into? It. Yeah. It's all into the narrow intelligence space because right. there's no economic benefit of getting a general intelligence. No, so, so I'll agree and disagree with that. So I will agree that the money is currently not being funneled toward general intelligent AI, but I won't agree that the reasoning for that is because they don't feel there's an economic benefit to having a general intelligence AI. Um, I, I would argue the reason why it's not being funded there is because of the, of the belief that the success in investing in trying to create a general intelligence AI you know, is so unlikely that it's not worth the investment. But if you had a general intelligence AI, uh, I mean, the, the amount of, of, of things it could do in our society or the problems it could solve would have massive economic benefit to whatever corporation ended up with it first. And that's, that's, that claim is somewhat based on an argument that any, any general intelligence in, in, a, in a computer form would immediately be a general super intelligence. And the argument for that is because the limit, so, so we have general intelligence as humans, but we're limited by our, our, our memory, by our, um, our processing rate, um, by our mathematical you know, limitations, by any number of things that a computer is not limited by. So if you take any of the super intelligent qualities of any of our existing narrow uh, computational abilities, so like a calculator and like Google information storage and, and information recovery and all of that, it's all, we have super, intelligent, um, super intelligence in every category. The only thing we're lacking is a general intelligence that can bring, that can access all of those and extrapolate from all of those without needing a human's slow processing to, to, to be the middleman. So as soon as you have a general intelligence that's in a computer, it will have access to the, all of the super intelligences that we already have in a narrow version. And so it'll basically be a human that can do math, like a calculator that has all of the knowledge of everything on the internet and has the ability to, to generalize between those and thinks at a rate, you know, millions of times faster than any human thinks. So even if you assume it's not more intelligent, just imagine how quickly it can, pro uh, like, like uh, it can process information. So if you had a, a group of scientists in a room for a million years working on working on a problem, I mean that that's that's kind of yeah, equivalent but, to how. But that's where that's why it's going to be funneled towards narrow intelligence because you have what 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 are human scientists let's pick physics for example what are they focused on they're focused on very singular tasks trying to understand the Higgs boson they're focused on trying to put their general human intelligence into focusing on this one key study but they're not able to because our brains are limited and we have humans mm -hmm. the flaws of humans is we just have so many other distractions in our life mm -hmm. and we have to sleep etc cetera, etc cetera. but whereas we're uh, I think the money is going to go into is primarily around the narrow intelligence so that you can just focus all that uh, AI work on doing more discoveries around the Higgs boson, for example. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't require this AI to then also need to know how to compose music and or um, you know, know how to cook in order mm -hmm. to be able to focus on Okay. But isn't it yeah. beneficial, though, to create all these narrow focuses before you create the general one? Because then you can draw from the narrow ones. So I, I would argue that by having the, the general superintelligence 
And, and keep in mind, I just made an argument for how general intelligence of any sort in a computer would automatically become general superintelligence. Having a general superintelligence is going to expedite the process of creating narrow intelligences that are good at their tasks. So if your goal is, is to create a narrow intelligence that, that can figure out stuff to do with the Higgs boson as efficiently as possible, and you look at the current neural intelligences that they're working on in that regard, and what the limitations are, what you know, where where they're getting caught up, where they're having problems. Well, a general superintelligence would be able to find solutions to the problems preventing that you know that venture from going forward much faster than a group of scientists working on it would be able to, because they would they would basically be a group of scientists of a human level general intelligence but with superhuman knowledge and encyclopedic knowledge of everything to do with science, every science textbook ever, like whatever humans are working on, a general superintelligence will be better at. So, so it's, like, it's like once you have general superintelligence, anything we're currently working on, it will be better at doing that thing. I, I can't think of an argument that would suggest that that's not the case. The only arguments are that that isn't going to be able to be feasible to create. Mm -hmm. So my argument in, in opposition to Kenny is, is simply that it's not that it wouldn't be hugely economically viable to have one of these things. It's that they aren't investing in it because they don't think that we're going to be successful at creating it. And we'd be more likely to advance Higgs boson, you know, narrow intelligence research by just doing it ourselves. Because we'll at least make some progress in the meantime, instead of making no progress for hundreds of years until we finally get the superintelligence that will then answer all our, all our questions. Uh, can you, would you say that you disagree with the, with the argument that... a, a a general intelligence is going to instantly become a general superintelligence? Or do you disagree with the argument that a general superintelligence would be much better at everything that humans do than humans are? From my perspective, I highly doubt the, the general intelligence is going to emerge. That's... Yeah. Oh, I, I, agree, with, I agree with that. I just... Like, I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't think... For me, I think where things are going to go is uh, towards the... The reason why I'm focused on the narrow intelligence and why I don't think that, you know, people are really going to accelerate the general intelligence piece is because there's just so much more economic value. And Short-term economic. But I can understand your uh, why you think, uh, so you're saying like a general intelligence would be able to kind of piece more things together to uh, maybe uh, accelerate the narrow intelligence piece. But from, I really do think that this general intelligence in how you're describing would not be a general intelligence because uh, for me like a general intelligence means it has to be able to match the capabilities of a human being so uh, it would have to be able to take on other tasks and uh, learn them and apply them I, I don't think we're going to get to that point because people are just going to be focused on we got to extract as much economic value out of intelligence and and keep things focused on where it needs to go. Uh, I'm not trying to, I, I, sorry, I want to pipe in again here. I, I don't want this to be the, come the Kenny and Will show uh, <laughs> on this. And, and, and uh, you know, Selena and Sherry have a lot of other interesting things that they want to get to. So I, I don't want to talk for too long on this, but I will make one more point to address that. Uh, so one, you have the argument that you don't think a general intelligence is going to exist or that we're going to be able to create one because of the, the just the complexity, the sheer complexity and the sheer number of things humans are good at and a lack of understanding of how and why we're good at those things. And, and I, I would simply put forward the argument that, you know, unless there, that, that basically the brain is a computer and 
It's a computer that has already successfully mastered general intelligence to the extent that we understand it. And so therefore, unless you think there's something special about having a brain that's made of meat or a computer that's made of meat as opposed to other components, then there's nothing suggesting that we can't cre create a similar computer that performs similar tasks out of other hardware. And heck, even if you do assume that there's something special about having a computer made of meat, well, we could just create neat computers that have super general intelligence AI. So, so it's not that it's, it's impossible to create, it's just when will we, when will we achieve that success? So, so, so long as you assume that we're making progress and we're making our computers better and better over time, so long as we continue to make progress in that domain, it will inevitably end up getting to an area where a computer can iteratively self-improve so, so go into its own code and make itself better and better and better and better. And obviously the better it makes itself, the, the better it will be at making itself better. So pretty much all you have to do is, is get some level of basic general intelligence that can iteratively improve itself. And then it will just improve itself indefinitely, <laughs> effectively, until it is this super intelligence we're talking about, probably within very short order. And, the, and, and so long as we're making improvements, the only thing that can stop us from getting there at some point is if our civilization goes extinct and for some reason we stop making improvements in technology. So then the question is, is this coming in 100 years? Is this coming in 200 years? And I don't think it's, it's unreasonable to say within 100 years at the rate at which we're expanding on our knowledge in this topic, we could have something close to a, a, you know, a tentative general intelligence that can iteratively improve itself. And once we get there, we are now at the, at the feet of a general superintelligence that I think will, will dwarf our capacity in, in every respect. And, and the questions are, you know, what would a world like that look like at this point? How are we going to interact with that thing? And how big of a difference will there be between us and it? And, and, and I, think, I think our inability to react properly to this inevitability, in my mind, is concerning because... Imagine you had contact, this is something Elon Musk mentioned once in an interview, and I liked it. Um, he said, imagine you had an alien contact. They said, you know, we are super intelligent, you know, galaxy overlords, you know, we've been around for billions of years, and we're on our way to Earth. Prepare to meet us in 200 years. I feel like, I feel like the reaction to meeting a super intelligent alien civilization would be a lot larger. If it, we knew it was coming in 200 years, we would be preparing for that. Right? But the fact that we kind of, some of us acknowledge that in 100 to 200 years, we will be faced with um, a super intelligent general intelligence in the form of AI and in, in our computers, you know, we, we, aren't, we aren't reacting to that eventuality the way that I think that we should be, because it's going to be world really? shattering. Why? Why, why do we need to react to it now? I don't know. It's not here yet. And... Humans are pretty, I feel like humans are pretty adaptable. We'll figure it out. And given the progress of uh, artificial intelligence, I mean, there's likely going to be, you know, our, the wearables market, for example, is increasing. So likely intelligence is going to start integrating into our bodies and things like that. So I think this uh, progression of where humans and artificial intelligence are going to get much closer and have to interact with each other more will likely happen. But I don't think it's going to be like some catastrophic event that we need to like prepare for right now 
Uh, yeah, so we, we could talk about all the ways in which uh, super general intelligence could be catastrophic, and, and it be, could be catastrophic in a lot of ways that people wouldn't expect. And it could also be benign and, and amazing. I mean, that is definitely a possibility. Um, but I think the main reason for precaution is because we don't know which of those it's going to be without me going into all the ways it could be catastrophic. And especially the rate at which we, we regulate things currently, you know, we basically allow a technology to, to come into existence. And then we look at what the effects are. And then we gather some information and then a panel or a committee is created to discuss oversight. And then it gets passed, you know, in legislation of some sort. And then there's an over, a committee to make sure that these changes are implemented. And, and this process takes years. And when you consider what a super, uh, in, uh, a general super intelligence could accomplish in a couple of years or, or what influences it might have in that time span, um, especially if it got in the hands of bad actors or even if there was just the accident of uh, you know programming it wrong like, like here's here's an example okay um, it's a doomsday example of a of a of an AI that doesn't necessarily have negative intent which is I think something that people assume too often um, is imagine you had a company that really wanted to make paper clips and for some reason it creates a super intelligent general AI and tasks it with making paper clips and it just says make as many paper clips as you can for our company and utilize your intelligence to gather resources as you see fit. And this, this super general intelligent AI would be so competent at creating paper clips that it would very quickly start turning all of the material around it into paper clips. And then if it realized that people didn't want this, so they were going to try and turn it off, and that would go against its stated objective of creating as many paper clips as possible, it would quickly come up with a solution to eradicate humanity or cage us or whatever so we couldn't stop it. And eventually when it runs out of other material, it's going to decide that the atoms in our body would be more useful as paper clips than as humans. And everything's paper clips. I mean, it's a very hypothetical example. I think, I think you're I listening to too much Elon Musk here. <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. I don't think that's how it works because you need yeah. a human to input data in order for it to get that intelligence, right? No. I, I think the other problem with that is it, there's a lot of assumptions underlying that, meaning there's a capability of the AI to uh, set up manufacturing, be able to have the resources and control to uh, control mechanical equipment to mm -hmm. manufacture. Maybe we might get there with maybe like nanotech far, far out in the future. But mm -hmm. I think if, if uh, you talk to anyone in manufacturing, even making a paperclip is the most difficult thing in the world, <laughs> uh, especially at a mass scale level. So I think right. there's just, to me, like those hypothetical situations, there's so much more underlying assumptions that need to come together for that to actually occur. And you're assuming that but, there's a, like that the AI can sense a perceived threat. Well, that's, its... that's what general intelligence is. Yeah. So if it wasn't able to predict, you know, the future actions of humans in its surroundings, well, then it's failed at being a general intelligence. So basically, imagine a general intelligence with the capability of a human and then take all of those narrow elements humans have and make them super, super intelligent. And now you've got a general intelligence with super intelligent capabilities in, in all the ways humans have capabilities, right? I just think it would, it would sense the human's intentions regarding paperclips versus regarding ending its life. I see that as a failure to, to acknowledge the, the capabilities of a general intelligence, let alone a, a super 
a general super intelligence. Like, like it, I, the idea of a general intelligence is that it's a computer that's able to extrapolate across various different areas. So it, it's able to ha- be task driven and like, here's a goal. And it's not going to accomplish that goal in, in some linear way, the way that our current neural intelligences would. It would look at all available information and kind of come, come up with its own unique solutions um, yeah. the way a, any, a any human would. Almost like creativity, right? Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, and that's really the, why it's a general uh, intelligence, because it's able to creative, creative thing. I'm going to put it in quotations yeah. because it's yeah. not... I don't. We can debate right. whether it's creative or not. Like whether it's true creativity, exactly. But um, it would mimic human creativity. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. But I, I, I still think there's a lot of underlying assumptions that need to come together for this uh, doomsday scenario to occur. But I think maybe a more pressing doomsday, <laughs> maybe not doomsday, but downside to artificial intelligence uh, could potentially be some discussions around privacy. Uh, and how, for example, AI has been able to potentially be used to create deep fakes and things like that. So maybe you want to talk about some of the impact of... Yeah, I mean, we're not in, in the space where we have a general intelligence yet, obviously. Yeah. So we do have human input into, into the AI. So you have these human actors who maybe have good intentions, maybe don't have quite as good intentions. So we have a few different ways uh, that AI has been incorporated into our society lately. All of the articles that I found were within the last few months, some of them within the last few days. There is um, a text generator that Elon Musk's company created that... OpenAI? OpenAI, yeah, they created... It's not not actually Elon Musk's company. It was just, it was like backed by him financially and then he did. Oh, he disassociated okay. himself with it. Oh, I didn't know he disassociated himself with it. Yeah. Okay. There's a few people right. that have funded this, but it's right. kind of a collective. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Apologize. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> My limit, I'm very limited in, in this knowledge of AI stuff. Okay. So OpenAI created a text generator and they're able to input some information saying like, okay, you're going to create an article about unicorns existing. And so this text generator would create this whole news article where they have quotes from people and it's this whole article on finding unicorns. And so they created this text generator that looks like human speech. So it can create human language. And they were worried about putting it out to the public uh, because they're worried about people using it for malicious intent. So things like generating fake news, uh, stuff like that. Uh, so they didn't actually release the the software. They just released a, a smaller model of the software and then uh, part of only part of their, their results because they think that people could use this text generator to develop text lots a lot quicker so the people who want to use it for good won't won't be able to to use it sorry yeah, but what, <laughs> one of the challenges that open ai is trying to uh, address is basically you know people can potentially use ai for nefarious activities and what they're trying to do is really kind of open it up so that people have access to ai technologies with the hope that 
you can combat AI with AI. Yeah. So really around, so let's say someone was able to create an AI to create fake news. Uh, potentially you could use AI to also detect that fake news. Right. The um, Pentagon is actually devoting millions of dollars to figuring out how to detect AI. Um, so altered images and stuff like that. Um, so they're actually putting money into figuring out what is fake uh, because there have been a lot of different things that have come out. So there's a website called This Person Does Not Exist. Uh, and it went pretty viral where it's an AI that's generating new faces, brand new faces that have never been seen before. Um, and they look like photos of people, but those people don't exist. Um, and there's also deep fakes, which is there was this um, this person who created this this software for people to use where you input a bunch of information about, let's say, a celebrity. Um, and so the AI will learn how to see the celebrity from all angles. And you could put that celebrity into a video. So originally, like all things, it was created for porn. Or so a, a celebrity, yeah. yeah. So it was so a celebrity was you know superimposed into this porno video. There was also a video about Trump having the features of the Chinese president <laughs> and uh, talking about fire and fury that he was going to rain down on Korea. Right. So so there are so there are ways that you could uh, superimpose somebody onto a video. So you want to know if that's happening especially because you could potentially ruin someone's career. If it was a celebrity who got put into a, a porno, then, you know, that's like their sex video now, right? So it's it could ruin their career. Or think about the common person. I mean, what type of resource would a common person have to fight a deep fake right. video? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think there is a bit of an arms race that uh, when it comes to AI, especially with different countries. And I think that's probably one of the biggest concerns that we should probably have some visibility around because different countries are starting to enable AI to potentially do nefarious things. And how do you detect that? How do you combat that? I think it's a big open question right now. And obviously, you know, certain governments are spending money on trying to accelerate the advances in AI detection and combating some of these uh, deep fakes and other ways of potentially using AI to either harm an economy or harm another country. And well, you have a lot of, sorry, you have a lot of questions around who owns the data that uh, is garnered by the AI. So let's say you have a Google Home system where it's recording certain things, it knows what you're ordering online, um, that sort of thing. It has all that data on you. Who owns that data? Who gets to use that data? Those are also privacy issues that people are are concerned about. I, I think to do with what you're saying about deep fakes and, and whatnot and uh, creating a fake video is that in the future will be just as convinced and as convincing as a real video. Um, I think the real issue with that, I mean, sure, I mean, it'll, it'll affect some celebrities. I, I doubt it will affect many individuals, um, you know, because who wants to invest resources into manipulating me saying something, you know, right? But I do think it will have massive uh, influence on, you know, public perception of things of importance because, you know, like political issues and whatnot, or companies, you know, I'm trying to, you know, advance their, their objectives and whatnot. So, yeah, if you, if you can make a, a politician look like they said something bad and they're your political opponent and, and you know, if 
that information gets out there and 90% of people, you know, see it and talk about it and only 20% of people end up realizing that was a fake video, well, that can have massive influence. So in a sense, I think that'll cause a problem for our, our political system. But I have an interesting thought about, about use of AI in our political system to actually more effectively produce results for a democracy than is currently being uh, achieved by politicians. Because politicians are effectively they're supposed to be the voice of the people, right? They're supposed to, as effectively as, as they can, produce benefits for the people based on what the people say they want as benefits. Right? But the problem with this system is, is corruption and individual you know, desire to advance their own needs. And, and I think that if you could replace political actors with, with artificial intelligences that are supposed to perform the same role, I, I think you could eliminate a lot of that bias. So imagine a system where you have artificial intelligence that will listen to what the public says they want right, based on the data that gets input from polling and whatnot. And then it will have the required intelligence to be able to look at the different options available, the, the different political options available to accomplish said, you know, desired goal and to weigh the outcomes of each of those and see which one aligns best with the public interest. I like, so instead of having Trump at the head saying, OK, the people say they want this, you know, we can nuke this country as one option, we can do this as one option, and then you leave it to Trump to decide which one of those three options is going to best achieve what the public wants. Wouldn't it be better to have some kind of general intelligent AI, ideally, or even potentially even a narrow AI um, that's, that's given that objective to weigh the options and spit out the solution based on what the public say they want the outcomes to be? Or, or even just to have that as a filter. Right. You know, so have that as an additional layer. So you're not removing humans from the process entirely, but you're at, but, but, you know, when the president says, I want to build a wall because it will do all these things. Well, then you can just defer to the AI that looks into it and goes, well, no, it's not going to accomplish those goals. It's going to cause these problems, you know, and, and this is not aligned with what the public is saying they want. I mean, that's the benefit of AI. I mean, a lot of uh, industries right now are using AI almost like a recommendation engine to help uh, guide them to a decision. Not necessarily, mm-hmm. it doesn't, at least right now, it doesn't take a lot of the control away from right. humans. Eventually, I think uh, people will become more comfortable with the decision making of AI, but a, a lot of times right now, AI is kind of the recommendation engine for decisions. Yeah, because it eliminates bias, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it provides insights that humans can't provide because that's access to so much more information computational power that's super interesting Mm yeah there's a lot of talk about different industries using digital twins for example essentially like mimicking uh, different whatever processes or things like that to then figure out if i change a what will happen to c right They'll just test each hypothesis, you know, thousands. In like a virtual simulation. In a virtual simulation yeah. to figure out what is the best outcome. Right. And then gives, give the recommendation. And usually it's processes where it would just take a human being so much time and knowledge right. to figure out what the right uh, solution would be. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that uh, Lynn talked about in his lecture was... Uh, how would you feel if you walked into a doctor's office, a lawyer's office, um, something like that, and there was an AI that you had to speak to in order to get your problems resolved? And I think that kind of goes along with if we put AIs in power uh, to, to solve our problems, would people be comfortable with that? 
Probably not initially. <laughs> yeah, I definitely mean, not initially. Yeah. Would we would we even take into account what the AI is saying, or we would just ignore it to get our own agendas across? You know what I mean? Because I don't think I don't think Donald Trump's listening to any any kind of intelligences. So but people believe he is. I think some people. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> But like, so, you know, he wants to build this wall and it's his, his grand scheme and all of that. He's not going to listen to all these other things. I think that we're not going to initially maybe trust the AI. People believe that Trump is, well, the people that support Trump believe that Trump is informed. At least some of them believe that he is informed. And whether or not that information is coming from his intelligent agencies or his own gut intuitions, which are super reliable, or whatever else they think, you know, that's, that's just a disagreement over, you know, what we think is effective at producing good solutions. You know, it's like, is it Trump's intuitions? Is it his advisor's intuitions? Because some people believe it's just one intuition versus another and that the information the advisors have is are kind of irrelevant. Where I, I would like to think that we've become so used to trusting technology to answer our questions and, and solve our problems that, that the more that we use it to do those things, the more comfortable we come with the idea that, yeah, technology knows better than humans do in a lot of situations. Where initially, I don't when technology came out, I don't think people would have had that. But I think, you know, it, it's a growing intuition people are, are, are getting that, okay, well, if I actually want to know the answer to this, let me Google it. You know, my friend says this, my other friend says this. Well, let's just solve this with what Google has to say. But Google like is created think, by these websites that people make. So people are making the websites with the information. So you Google it and then you access the information from the humans. Well, and, well, in a lot of ways, that information is being collected by artificial intelligences or by mechanical processes or simulations. So it's like, yeah, we're creating websites to present information, but not all of that information is coming from humans directly. Actually, but, I mean, majority of information from Google is through an algorithm, through an AI. Yeah, but she, she's right? not talking about what, what is presented to you on Google. She's talking about what the who actually created the links you're clicking on, I think. She's saying, ultimately... Like you're going you onto the websites, yeah. And the websites are human-created. So, I, I, yeah, I know that... The, right, but, I mean, the, an AI is still... Filtering those websites. figuring out the relevance, right? right? Yeah, exactly, because you're right. That's a good point. There might be 10 websites on the subject, all human-created, right? And Google is picking out the one that's most likely to be relevant or accurate. So there's already a lot of websites that are just falling to the wayside due to Google's algorithm saying, no, the humans that created this and are presenting this information don't know what they're talking about. But the, the problem we have right now with either false information or fake news is because other platforms like Facebook, their incentives is not around no. the accuracy of the data. Their right. incentives are structured around how many clicks. Right. And what gets the most clicks is if something in, uh, reinforces your own biases. Right? Or makes you angry, actually. Yeah. There, there's a lot mm-hmm. of discussion that uh, over, over what keeps you on a chatting platform or in a comments thread is actually how many people you're encountering with opposite polarizing views to yours that you are inclined to debate with. So no matter who you are, no matter how polarized and crazy your views are, there are algorithms that are pairing you with people who are either going to have crazier views or who have regular views. And, and so it's, it's really just, just facilitating a massive, you know, combative atmosphere and, and giving people the impression that, you know, there's a lot of other people who disagree with a lot more people that disagree with them than there actually are. Because even if there's only a few people disagreeing with them, those people are being matched with everyone to, 
to instill that polarized discussion. Uh, but back back to what you were saying earlier about um, the use of you know this person is not a, does not exist. You know, well, I think I think a solution to us accepting what these AIs have to say is to be. To, unfortunately, we have to check our own human psychology by creating human-sounding, human-looking avatars to present the information, right? So, so if it's just a computer that just types it out, you know, you might be not trusted as much. But if, it's, if it comes on your screen as a, as a face of, a, of an attractive female who has a soothing voice and talks to you with perfect tonation and everything like that, I, I, don't, I think the, hu- the, the human part of our brain is going to identify with that more as a human than as the information actually coming from from you know this technology. Yeah. So uh, this would be a good point to the trolley problem that I. Okay. Uh, so there was a study that was done. I'll link it in uh, the show notes. But basically, the to summarize, if uh, those who don't know about the trolley problem, let's say you're in a uh, streetcar, it's going down um, the rails, and they're gonna, you have to make a choice whether to switch the tracks or not. If you don't switch a track, you'll plow through five people. If you do switch the track, uh, you'll only plow through one person. And you have to make a decision. You know, do you actively kill one person or five person? And that's... Do you uh, pa- passively kill five or actively uh, kill sorry, one? Uh, there yes, are yeah, variations, yeah. though, of like, do you yeah. kill five people or do you kill your mother? Right. Yeah, like, yeah. so it, there's more at stake than just like, yeah. there's one person and then there's five. Yeah. So, so uh, another way of kind of viewing as well is, uh, you know, you are going down this rail uh, and there's a really big man in front of you. If you knew that if you push this really big man, actively push this big man and he got killed, but he will jam the brakes and you'll prevent killing five people, would you push this person? So what they uh, these people want to do is kind of change... Test our intuitions? Basically change the narrative to incorporate AI and or robotics and how right. we would uh, react to an AI. So by giving a backstory around the AI to make it seem like the AI was had, uh, had emotions or feelings, people were hesitant to push the AI off of the... Or to pull the plug. Or to pull the plug, whatever yeah. it might be, right? To kill actively kill the AI. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which to me supports uh, your point on, you know, if you actually put human features and human... Or even have the... It, the AI may not actually have feelings. As long as it's able to replicate right. uh, feelings... Humans will us, identify with yeah, it. Yeah, humans would identify... And we would be more inclined to view this AI as a living being. Yeah, yeah actually, back to what you're saying about the trolley problem. Um, I, I, I think that actually touches also on, on what I was saying about having AIs run our political system. Is I, think, I think the trolley problem highlights how human intuitions are fallible in some senses. So what we intuit is the right decision, or, or not even what we intuit is the right decision, but is, is the, what we intuit as the decision we would want to make in that situation isn't always the same as what we intuit the right situation to be. So we all would acknowledge that five people dying is worse than one person dying. But when you have a human at, you know, in the cab staring at the lever, you know, do I pull this and choose to kill that one person, they might fail to make... What, what society would deem as the right call in killing one over five because they don't want to be personally 
held intuitively responsible for that death of that one person. Where if you were to automate that with AI decisions and we just input, you know, here is what we value. We value human life, kill as few humans as possible, and don't let human fallible intuitions like negatively affect your effectiveness at killing as few people as possible. Then maybe AIs would actually be better at achieving um, our goals than humans would be. So where you have a human politician who's like, well, you know, I, there is some diplomatic solution that, you know, that, that is counterintuitive to, to myself and to the rest of the voting public. But something we're really okay with doing is just going to war, right? And if we just go to war, it, it, will, it will be the other solution, but it, it will kill lots of people. It will be horrible, but our intuitions don't properly, you know, like value thousands of deaths. It's just a statistic, right? But it really doesn't like the idea of changing some policy or providing aid to a dictator, you know? So, so if instead of having humans make that decision with our faulty intuitions, if instead we just said, okay, well, he, the, here's what the public wants and let the AI decide what solution is going to achieve that as effectively as possible, you know, instead of having human politicians who are accountable to the public, the public's intuitions, you know, that might, that might be better. But it's going to be interesting if one day this scenario ever happened where an AI made an active decision to harm another person. How we would view that? How, I, I would actually think from a legal standpoint how that would mm. be viewed. I think that would be a very challenging case because ultimately, who is responsible in that case? Is it, yeah. is it the, the programmers or is it... I think you should, you should set up a body. Or is it the AI? You just, Can you convict an AI? <laughs> well, set, set up a body of people or a committee that is going to evaluate the coding on these types of AIs that are given a certain amount of freedom. Right to to potentially cause harm, in in obviously in the effort of avoiding greater harms, and and the committee will decide which codes they think are appropriate, and then if anyone wants to contest a decision made by an AI, it would then be the committee that approved the code that led to that AI doing that thing that would have the legal responsibility, and obviously legal they would have insurances and whatnot, protecting them as an organization. Um, but they would have to go to bat to, uh, to back their decision in allowing that code. And, and that legal process would protect the companies producing these AIs that are actually producing good in society, with the you know, exception of these little hiccups. It would, pre- so it would prevent them from deciding not to implement this due to fear of litigation, while also allowing you know, iterative improvements to the laws around what codes are allowed to be, you know, enabled. Yeah. In these I areas. think it's just going to be really tricky because uh, if, if I were the family of the victim, right, mm-hmm. I'm going to fight for it's negligence and yeah. justice. It's negligence, mm-hmm. and you, and I would do all everything in my power to prove that that AI will, did not make the right decision, right, and mm-hmm. try to, and then how how do you you have to trace. The, I mean, you can look at the past data to try to figure out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's so many. I think it's going to be quite complicated, a complicated case. I don't know. I, I if, it, if it ever, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be a rare occurrence if it ever does happen. But. Well, I mean, I think despite it being rare, like the events themselves being rare, that AIs do things that make us unhappy, 
I don't think the rarity of these events is going to prevent it from being quite frequently discussed in our society because all it takes is one event, one self-driving car somewhere in the world that decides to kill a mother and her child instead of a group of 50 men or something. Well, it kind of did happen in, I think... Arizona. I, Arizona, possibly Phoenix. Because uh, uh, I was actually in Phoenix, um, uh, and this was kind of a, a big thing that happened. They kind of removed all of the self-driving cars because mm-hmm. I was actually hoping to sit in one of them. But... Uh, that's too bad. <laughs> but anyways... Uh, that would be really cool. I know, but they took it all out. Uh, but basically, I mean, a, a self-driving car hit a cyclist. <laughs> right. Um, because it didn't recognize it didn't the recognize. bicycle. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, like, like I was saying, I don't think that the, infre- the lack of frequency of these events is going to prevent them from having a large impact in our, in our social discussion mm-hmm. and, and our moral discussion as a society. But what's interesting is actually when you look at the data, artificial driving cars have decreased the number of accidents that have, like their accident rate is much lower than if a human drives. Well, it, so. I, I think at some point it definitely will get there. there mm-hmm. Interesting, there was recently, uh, very recently, a study came out um, contesting that data. Mm-hmm. So, the origi- so the original data that was collected to suggest something like 40% less accidents resulting in airbag deployment, um, that's in cars with self-driving features activated versus the times when they weren't activated and there was like a control group of like before these cars were allowed to have these systems activated or, or so so originally that that study concluded 40 percent less airbag deployment but then another uh, another independent review organization recently reviewed that study and found problems in the data and in the in the methodology of of that so there were some some vehicles had incomplete data and what the study did was it um, it took the, that incomplete data and made assumptions that were extremely favorable toward uh, you know the automated driving, and then posted study it posted the results in a way that suggested it wasn't actually. So when they reviewed it, they found that there was actually a, a slight to moderate increase in airbag de- airbag deployment currently with that technology. Now 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 technically. The time it took between the original study and that, and 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 the review of that study, like two years has passed in in advancement in that technology. So I doubt that's any more representative of of the effectiveness of of, of these systems because they are getting better and better and better. But I don't know that that that's an interesting um, um, point. But I definitely think that right now it's it's they're, they're beneficial. I I would say on 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 mass they are probably adding more benefit than detriment, and it'll only continue to get better. But the way we perceive that morally isn't accurate. You know, if it saves a thousand accidents, stops a thousand accidents from happening, but causes one, people are going to focus on the one that was caused. Yeah. Do you think that maybe we don't trust it because it's like one full car of AI versus what we have now is we've got cars that can uh, reverse park by themselves or... Um, you know, a break by themselves and that sort of thing. Like, so we've got these parts that are in the car. So it's still human driven, but the parts are AI versus a whole car that's AI. Do you think that we just don't trust that car and we're like, oh, I know that car is going to get in an accident. So what do you mean by that? So like we trust, so we trust that, that these cars that we drive now that have parts that are AI, like we Mm -hmm. trust in those parts. So we trust that, uh, we trust it's going to break. Um, right. 
or that it can reverse park into this parking oh, spot without right. hitting something. And better than I can. You know, yeah, that's yeah. why I use it. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Versus there's this car made up entirely of AI right. that we don't trust because we know it's going to get into an accident because it's not human operated at all. Mm. I think, I mean, it's also the current level of the technology. I mean, if there's anything weird about the road, like often they might repaint lines to uh, kind of move people over because of construction. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, maybe like a couple of years ago, I mean, AI has a difficult time figuring out what happens when roads are under construction. Right. And that's where, you know, a human needs to take over to kind of uh, take over the decision making. But I, I would say it's very likely in the very long, in the long run, right, as years go by and uh, AI software is improved, they're just going to get smarter to figure, oh, yeah. to figure out and navigate these roads. And I think that's when the confidence level starts to increase with people and allowing cars to drive by itself. But I think at this point, there's a lot of mistrust because of some of the flaws. I mean, you can just go on Google, uh, sorry, on like YouTube and just Google, you know, self-driving cars getting into accidents. And there's always right. a photo or a video of car on uh, fire. Yeah, you know. yeah, doing something that it shouldn't be doing that, you know, a normal human would look and see, oh, I would have known to do this. But right. uh, the software is not at the point right now where uh, it would completely replace a human being's uh, decision making. But we're also not seeing all the situations where the car did something we wouldn't have done. Exactly. Like, like yeah. see a car three ahead braking. And because we don't, we only see the car in front of us where it has radar that will bounce off the ground and track the motion of the car in front of the car in front of the car. And so it can detect accidents that are imminent, you know, that we wouldn't have been able to see uh, and start braking where the human goes to take control of the wheel. Oh, why is my car braking right now? Right. And then seconds later, you see the pile up happen in front of them that they just got saved from. Yeah. But I mean, I ask this question to a lot of people, you know, if you had a if you knew that, you know, one in a thousand trips, you would get into an accident if you were driving. And if you knew that one in 10,000 trips, you would get into an accident with an AI car driving you. There's still a lot of people that given those statistics say, oh, I, I, I would be terrified to be driving in an AI driven car and I would rather drive it myself. So I don't know. I don't know if that's a failure of, of intuitions or a failure of mathematical statistical understanding on the part of the people humans, I've asked this question humans like to, to, but... humans like to be in control. Uh, yeah, I was and, just thinking and that. if you think about an airplane, right? I mean, you're giving up your control <laughs> of the vehicle at that point. That's right. why there's certain people that are just afraid of flying, even though it's one of the safest forms right. of transport. And Lynn mentioned during his talk that uh, pilots only control the plane, or they only yeah. physically are driving the plane for seven minutes of the flight. Yeah. And my takeoff and landing. <laughs> it's already usually. AI, pretty <laughs> yeah, much. Yeah, my father-in-law is used to be a pilot, and so I was talking to him about this the other night because I heard that statistic, and um, he was saying, "Yeah, like you still need humans to like monitor the equipment and stuff like that, but you're really only physically driving it for about seven minutes." Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, on a plane, you need a human to take over if something goes wrong, but mm -hmm. the rest of the time when you're just cruising. What's yeah. the pilot to do? Yeah. <laughs> Just let the computer do it. Interesting job. <laughs> I never thought of that. I asked him if he ever gets bored, and he said no, because there was always like equipment to look at and stuff to do. But a lot of flashing lights to entertain the pilots. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and they tell stories, apparently, and stuff like that, so they don't get bored. But I would probably get bored. Mm -hmm. What well, other topics that were we looking to discuss from, from the lecture? Well, I, I don't know. Does Mars need AI? 
<laughs> well, okay, here's my thought because he talked about, Lynn talked about how humans uh, are not built to survive for space travel and that sort of thing, which makes sense. Like our, right. our physical capabilities wouldn't take us that far. So do you think that Mars might be, we might first populate Mars with AI or machinery before we even try to go there? Yeah, so that, that's a great question, and I like that, um, that, that the speaker acknowledged, uh, well, one, you know, the beauty of human life and human intelligence and the need for us to, to continue to exist into the future and how uh, it's necessary for us to start colonizing other, you know, space to the extent that we can in order to facilitate our survival. And, but ultimately, we are talking about to facilitate human survival. Right? And I, I think it's important to first acknowledge why it's important that humans survive as opposed to AIs survive into the future. Because yes, we are squishy, you know, meat bags that have a lot of physical requirements to sustain ourselves. You know? um, we're very inefficient intellectual systems, both in terms of our intellectual capacity and in terms of you know, our upkeep. You know, we, we use a lot of resources of our environments and you know, we die easily and all of that. And we have many errors in intellectual thinking. So some people might think, well, you know, if, if AIs are the future and even if humanity does go extinct, but AIs continue to exist, wouldn't that be a better version of the universe? You know, we've just subbed out an inferior intelli intelligence for a superior one without a lot of the, the biases and flaws and, and, you know, without destroying the environments they exist in. And, and, and I think, and I will get to your question, I realize I'm not answering it immediately, but um, I think it's important to acknowledge a big difference between artificial intelligence, even artificial general intelligence or artificial super, general super intelligence. The big difference between humans and AI is consciousness. And something that wasn't brought up in the talk is whether or not AIs would be conscious. Personally, I see no reason why they would necessarily be. I think it's quite likely that they wouldn't be. And although consciousness as it exists in humanity is, um, is mysterious as to why there's consciousness at all. And by consciousness, I, I, I mean why we experience things. So instead of just solving problems why there's an experience of solving that problem, you know, why there's an associated emotional, you know, roller coaster, um, as opposed to just, and obviously our emotions in humanity are meant to, to influence our actions. But in machines, instead of emotions to influence their actions, we just have protocols, right? Like if X, then Y. But X doesn't have any kind of, or, or X or Y don't have any kind of um, correlating emotional experience in that in that machine so i think that ultimately ai could do everything we can do they can colonize mars they can do all of that and they can do it a lot better than we can but i do think that there is some imperative for us to preserve consciousness because it's because progress in any domain is irrelevant unless you have a conscious observer to experience it and to enjoy it and to appreciate it you know, so who cares if there's intergalactic civilizations that get created if there's no consciousness among any of the entities interacting in that civilization? If it's just, if, if it's just some domino effect of, of you know, of, of AIs pretending to have conscious experience living so out. So you're just saying, like, what's the point, essentially? If, well, yeah. if there were civilizations that were just AI 
We get AI without consciousness. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I mean, they might end up creating empires and all of that because we programmed them to do that. But it, but if there's if the lights are off in the mind of these AIs, I don't see any purpose to preserving that society over a less efficient human society. I, I think I would much rather a universe where there were conscious actors who could appreciate the universe. You know, we are the universe's thinking, feeling parts. Um, Couldn't we program an AI to mimic these? Mimic. That's what I'm saying, is, is we could create a, a, a society that mimics our own, or a better version of our society that's entirely AI, but without any consciousness that's simply going through the motions of pretending to make friendships and pretending to have goals and aspirations, but ultimately it's just a computer and the lights are off and there's no observer, there's no you know, uh, phenomenological experience. And I think that would be a sad future. One where humans were replaced by non-feeling, non-conscious AI robots, even if they were better at everything that we do. So, so, so the reason I prefaced my answer to you with that is because you know, my answer to your question is yes, AI is, is better suited for space travel. It's better suited for maintaining a civilization. It's better suited for colonizing other worlds and doing everything. But I don't see any point in having them set up an AI civilization on Mars, unless it's ultimately to facilitate humans living and existing on Mars as well. So I do think that we should send AI to Mars first to set up the necessary habitats and requirements for us meatbags to go live over there, you know, but without bringing the human experience there, I don't really see any purpose in the enterprise. I don't know. I, I'm so negative about humanity because it's just one of those like, what? Why shouldn't we just make a better version of ourselves with AI and forget about the meat bags? I mean, the meat bags ruined everything. What do you mean by a better version of ourselves? So, I mean, if you're going to set up an AI society, mimic the best of humanity in AI, I don't see why that's not a bad thing for the universe to have. And well, what do you why... think is the best thing about humanity? Because hmm? I, I think I think if you any answer to that question, what is the best thing about humanity? Hmm it ultimately relies on there being a conscious experience. Because you can't say music is the best thing about society. Because music floating through an empty void, mm -hmm. never to fall on a, an appreciating ear, you know? I don't think that music in and of itself has any value or utility other than its ability to influence conscious beings into better emotional states. So, so I, I don't think you can pick anything out of what you would classify as the best of human experience, the best of humanity, without some incorporation of conscious experience. So, so yeah, I, I'm totally down. I, I'm totally for improving the human experience through integration with AI. But I don't think that we can replace human experience, or I don't think it would be preferable for us to replace human experience with non-conscious AI. I think you need to bring consciousness along. That's, that's what I mean. I think we need, like, don't, who cares about colonizing the universe if consciousness doesn't come along for the ride? If humanity doesn't, you know? Yeah, but if you do, let's say you were able to duplicate. Consciousness? Uh, the, not consciousness, but the uh, appearance of consciousness. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, why couldn't you set uh, some, some guidelines and some rules around that? I mean, there's... You could, there's, but there's, what would be the value certain, of there's it? Certain, there's certain things I feel like we definitely do not want. So, uh, you know, take away 
impulses like uh, jealousy or uh, mm-hmm. or take out addiction or addiction and or, like that. or you know um, in Trump's case you know genocide of people. <laughs> so I mean if you just take out all these uh, impulses that don't really add value um, in the in the new world let's call it the new world and, mm-hmm. uh, in the AI world and wouldn't that just be a better place for the universe for everyone and but there wouldn't be anyone. It would, there would be AI. There, there, yeah, yeah, but why, AI why, why isn't is a that one. Not, I, That's I like, like saying like there'd be lots of rocks. You know, it's like yeah. it's like it'd be a great universe for rocks to exist in. But, you know, rocks would live their best life in this new universe without humans. But it's that's like, not a bad thing. That's it? assuming there's no other intelligent life. Fair, fair. So if you're, yeah, I mean, sure. So if you're saying humanity would ultimately end up the way we're going would ultimately end up being bad for other life in the universe. Then sure, like eliminate us and and, and replace us with some benign AI overlord. You maybe, know? maybe I'm just being really negative. I just don't feel like what's so special about humanity. <laughs> like why do we have to survive? Does anyone else have any, any reason they want, they want to throw? Or all three of you in this? No, I like life, like living things, like not just humanity. And I feel like if humans were to go elsewhere, they would bring other life forms with them. And I don't know that AI would do the same thing. So, yeah, if I could expand on that, uh, I, I do agree. I think that, that life is not just human life, because the speakers seem to have a preference for intelligence, where my preference is for consciousness, and, and I think conscious intelligence is, is, is the ideal. But, um, but preserving plant life and preserving nature insofar as you know, animal interactions and ecosystems, I think that's what humans find you know, find appealing when they think about eliminating humanity. They want to, they want what's best for these other things that they really appreciate being other conscious beings and ecosystems and other life. But, but I don't think many people would feel the same way about an asteroid. You know, if we were going to blow an asteroid up versus if we were going to blow up a thriving ecosystem, I think people, the difference between, in preference for blowing one up or the other is an asteroid's just a rock. There's no consciousness. There's no life. And, you know, like, that's the distinction. And so, so I think that, that humanity, even if you don't like humanity in and of itself, because so far on our planet, all that we do is destroy, right? Because all of the ecosystems that we exist in, that we come to dominate, are already in a fine balance. They've been tuned through evolution to be balanced. And mass disruptions in that balance, on mass, are negative, for the life in that ecosystem where in the rest of the universe so yeah everything on earth that we touch we end up hurting more than we help in terms of life nah, i don't agree with that <laughs> i don't think we you, name, name a couple areas that you think that we that life is but, thriving on our but, planet because of humanity but, other than human life but he, your assumption that humans disrupt the ecosystem is like are you adding a value judgment on that because I, like when you say bad i don't think it's bad because let's say if you kind of look at evolution of other organisms other organisms will disrupt other ecosystems as they evolve and things like that but we don't classify that as bad well it ends up being so okay so i'm I'm kind of arguing from your perspective Mm -hmm. so i i assumed your perspective to be that human life was less preferable than the so a thriving human life is Mm -hmm. less preferable than a thriving all other life on the planet Right. So, yeah, I, 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 you're right. There have been other other organisms that have caused other life in their ecosystem to go extinct yeah. and then have but, but thrived my, my, in the yeah, ecosystem Yeah, my only point is just around like a, uh, maybe like a, just classifying a judgment on our activities. Not, I, 
don't think everything we do is necessarily bad, but it's bad for everything we do is bad on mass, on average. Things we do are bad for life, for other life on our planet. Because by the, the, the excessiveness of our domination of our environment, we are pushing all other species to the periphery of existence. You know, um, and, and that trend is going to continue on our planet unless we make a conscious effort to reverse that process or to amend our behavior. And, and, I, and I do think the reason why human intervention in, in ecosystems is a bad thing, and by bad I mean it results in the death of or the elimination of the majority of other things in that ecosystem other than human or other than things that we think benefit us. I think the reason why we have that influence is because everything has been fine-tuned to some kind of optimal efficiency and a massive disruption will, will initially throw that off. And sure, it might end up coming to some other kind of balance. But the new balance is going to be human-dominated and not whatever other life used to exist there dominated. Um, and and now, I, now, I don't actually have any value judgment based on that. I, I mean, I think that human life is more interesting and more valuable by virtue of its intelligence and seeming level of conscious experience than I do think microbes. For example, if we eliminate microbes in some environment, I don't really have, I don't care too much about that. But even to the people that do care about that, I would argue that humans are continuing to exist for the same reason Selena just argued is a good thing for the ultimate, um, you know, vision of life in the universe. There's all these dead, barren worlds, and life from our planet isn't going to get to those to be able to spread. Not just human life, but other microbial life that will eventually evolve into more complex life and animal life. I think that, that it's not going to get there unless we facilitate it getting there. And we're in a unique position, even if we ourselves are depraved, you know, irrational beings, we're in a unique position to facilitate the spreading of life throughout the universe. And if we go extinct, that's not going to happen. So I, I, I like the idea of a future where we spread life to all these other planets and, and new evolutions take, take hold. And a billion years from now, there's there's all these different strains of evolution on all these different planets and humans have facilitated that. Whether or not we carried those microbes on, on our boots or we did it intentionally by seeding planets with microbes that would thrive there, that's all ultimately a good thing. And we can use AI for that. We it can. may be yeah. all for naught though because in 4 million years or 4 billion years isn't there going to be the Andromeda uh, uh, galaxy merging with ours and then all of our all of our work that we just did is all for naught. <laughs> yeah, so um that that's a common misconception. Oh god. I didn't mean to do that. that I didn't mean to go into another perceptuate. <laughs> Okay, okay. So so I that was something I wanted to to clarify. Yeah, I mean uh, in reality there's a lot of space in between. Exactly. <laughs> the, the the merging of two galaxies is not going to. It's not as not suddenly going to be like massive number of collisions of planets and stars. It's true to say that the Milky Way will be destroyed. It's not true to say that life within the Milky Way will be affected because the Milky Way is in its certain is in a certain form. It's a spiral galaxy, right? And that form will be disrupted. That's all that's being said when they say the, the Milky Way will be destroyed. But ultimately, the planets and the stars and the solar systems will continue effectively exactly as they are 
because they're not going to be hitting other stars, like Kenny said, due to the distances between them. When these galaxies merge, they're going to pass right through each other. And the two galaxies will form a new supercluster, you know, a new big galaxy. Um, it would be bad news for the planets or stars near the center. <laughs> because more likely to collide? More, more likely, of, I would say, tidal forces, as you have two... Because the centers are quite massive, mm -hmm. they're, eventually they're going to need to like coalesce. So, mm -hmm. but I, like some stars might get thrown out into the yeah. void. But ultimately, the only thing that will be affected is let's say that we know what star we're closest to. So we set up a a base of humanity on that star we're closest to. And, and right now we're we're two light years away from the nearest star, right? And so that's not too bad. We can create a base there. But then when the merge happens, it might throw those stars a lot farther apart from each other. But the individual solar systems will um, will remain intact. So Earth isn't going to be destroyed. The sun isn't going to be destroyed. It, our solar system is going to continue as it is. It just might change in its Actually, relative how, position. How long is our star, our sun, supposed to last? Yeah, I, I was also thinking. <laughs> isn't that similar? Our, like four our sun years is going to die out anyway. Anyways, that's probably the more immediate problem if you're in the time scale. Of immediate, things. yeah. <laughs> if you were to look at the time scale of galaxy colliding or star dying, I don't think anything's going to stop human human civilization. Other than if we can spread out to other stuff, it's not it's like not like oh well, we can spread as far as the whole galaxy, but then our galaxy is being destroyed anyway, which is kind of what was presented at the end of the speech. I think if we survive four billion years and we've spread out to our galaxy, the new galaxy coming in will just be, you know. It'd be like a gold mine Fresh meat. of new, <laughs> new planets and new resources. Like it'll, that, that'll, they'll be waiting on that collision, being like, "Hey, this is awesome for our civilization," you know. So new planets and new stars. Yeah, yeah, it'll be great. Um, so, so really, our, our our life in the universe can exist until the big freeze, you know, like for billions and billions and trillions and trillions of years, until all the stars die out, effectively, assuming that we can avoid extinction. Um, so was that what you wanted to clarify of yeah the, the Andromeda galaxy and the Milky Way galaxy hitting each other isn't from going, the top isn't going to, to yeah correct? yeah because okay. at the end he implied that you know okay how long can humanity survive and he set four billion years as the uh, as like the end game like we can survive four million year four billion years max and that's when our, our galaxy is getting obliterated but I, that's a misconception um, yeah. we can continue to exist after that. Okay. And I shared a video, which which will be in the in the link, uh, to further that claim. Okay, I think that's all the topics we have for today. So, thanks everyone for joining us, and we will check you guys out in the next episode. See ya! Catch you later. Bye. Bye. God, I did not contribute. <laughs>